Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and Happy New Year. Welcome to episode 69 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff. I hope you had an unbelievable holiday, and here we are right back into it. So, this is going to be fun. I think 2016 is going to be the most incredible year yet for the podcast. We have had one full year under our belt. This whole thing launched back in September of 2014. And 2015 was an incredible year. But if you're like me, you're always improving. So we are looking to take this up to another level. And I thought we would start this year with a subject that pretty much all of us are passionate about. Okay, most of you who listen to this podcast are ministry leaders. And what I mean by that is you're either senior leaders or leaders in a church, like you're hired by a church. But a lot of you are business people who are just really passionate about the church. And so you do something by day, but you serve at your church as a small group leader or board member or that sort of thing uh, by night and on weekends. And you're just passionate about the ministry of the church. And if you're like me and you're passionate about the ministry of the church, then you're passionate about reaching people who aren't in your church. We just came off our biggest Christmas yet and are opening the doors in January to what we hope will be an unprecedented number of people. And if you're like me, you're really passionate about millennials. You're really passionate about those young adults between the ages of about 18 and 35, wondering what can we do to really reach out to them? And so I've written extensively on this on my blog, kerryneuhoff.com. And today's guest is going to speak into this subject. And he is going to give a very different point of view than the one that maybe I would naturally have. And and that is, I don't see a lot of millennials going to most churches. Now, we have a lot of millennials who attend our church, but when you look at general church trends, it's not the case. Now, Hayden makes a really sort of contrarian argument and says maybe the panic is premature. So we have a fascinating discussion. I think we're actually not that far apart. And when you listen to it, uh, you'll see where you land on that. But he says, hey, Millennials are behaving like 20-year-olds do. And so it's a very different perspective. Uh, But not only that, he offers some incredible perspective on ministering to every generation. You know, if you're Gen uh, Gen X like I am, or maybe you're a baby boomer, or uh, maybe you're part of the elder generation or the silent generation, he, he talks about all of these generations with incredible insight, and I know you're going to gain something from that. So because this is such a universal issue, and hey, if you're a marketer, I mean, maybe you don't go to church at all, maybe you're a marketer, um, you're going to get some insight because anytime you kind of look at demographics and how people behave, uh, you learn something. And so Hayden's going to kick off 2016 for us. And what's really cool is he's got a new book called Generation IQ, which he'll talk about a little bit, but there's a promotion on right now and you can actually get the book. Uh, details are in the show notes, very inexpensively. It's marked down to $2.99 and you can get that at uh, Amazon, Apple, Barnes & Noble, Christian Book, Bookshout, Kobo, places like that. It's called Generational IQ, and it's by Hayden Shaw, who's my guest. So that's going to be incredible. And uh, I just want to thank you. I hope, listen, I want you to know I'm on your side, and uh, I will do everything I can to support you as a church leader. We've got some new initiatives coming this year, so this is going to be exciting. And uh, hey, for all of you who are podcast listeners, if you haven't jumped over to the blog, I would love you to do that. Uh, I've got a series running there this week all about the future of the church and how to kick off 2016 well. And I would love to have you visit and maybe leave a comment. You can just go to my name, kerryneuhoff.com, 
And maybe I'll spell it for you. C-A-R-E-Y. And are you ready for this? Who can memorize it? N-I-E-U-W-H-O-F dot com. And people always ask me, like, what is that? It's like, is that German? It's like, no, it's Dutch. It's actually Frisian, although probably centuries ago it was German. Anyway, it's much harder to spell than it is to say. It's just Newhoff, but kerryneuhoff.com. We have some great conversations on the blog, and it was a privilege to serve so many leaders last year and look forward to seeing even more on the blog and on this show. And finally, before we jump into Hayden, what you could do if this podcast has been a help to you, I would love for you to leave a rating or review on iTunes. Uh, And you can do that. That would be awesome. We're at 300 reviews and counting right now in the US iTunes store, which is incredible. But wherever you are in the world, leave one on your iTunes store and then uh, maybe share the love. Uh, Post this to your uh, social media. You can post it to Facebook or to Twitter or, or whatever. And I would just love for you to get the word out this year because we want to help more leaders than ever. So on to generational trends, something that fascinates me, and author and generational expert Hayden Shaw. Well, welcome, Hayden. I am so glad to have you on the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Yeah. So Hayden, you got a brand new book. It's called Generational IQ, and it's got, I, I would call it a provocative subtitle. The subtitle to the book is just fascinating to me. It says, Christianity isn't dying, Millennials aren't the problem. Aren't you millennials? Glad to hear that, finally. And uh, the future is bright. All right. So I take it you knew you were sort of taking a minority position in the church because everyone throws their hands up. And I've done this, right? Which is, which is like, okay, what's happening? Millennials are exiting church at record numbers. Churches are dying. And you've got a different view. So tell us a little bit about why you're so optimistic that the church is alive and well in an age where a lot of people aren't sure it is. Well, let's start with uh, why that subtitle, because the first part of the book looks at, um, you know, it looks at some of the research. Uh, uh, there's a chapter that looks at the research on Christianity living or dying. And then there's a whole section for um, parents of millennials right. and uh, families of millennials. And so the point is millennials aren't the problem. The life stage of emerging adulthood is the problem, if there's okay. a problem there. And then lastly, um, the church is the church can have a great future, or we can just whiff it completely, um, strike out, so to speak, and uh, kind of like my Cardinals did, uh, <laughs> even though they they had great expectations with the leading record, just kind of whiff it. Yeah. And um, we've all know, chased teams who have had that pain. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but the Blue the, Jays the, fan. But the Blue Jays did great this year. They did. They and, did. They kept it alive. And then there's uh, anyway, the Leafs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well. Uh, as a Blackhawks fan, I just don't even know what to say. <laughs> the, uh, um, anyway, the uh, the future can be bright if we can increase our generational intelligence. Okay. And so the first part of the book actually tries to do that. It looks at the four generations, and it looks at what are their spiritual strengths and weaknesses. And it makes the uh, observation that when we were born shapes our relationship with God. Okay, that's really interesting. When we were born shapes our relationship with God. Tell me about that, because you are, I mean, you've done a lot of your life's work in generational research, right? What makes boomers different than Gen Xers, different than millennials, different than whatever this next generation is. So explain that. How, how is a boomer's relationship with God different than a millennial's? You bet. The, uh, each generation is shaped by certain experiences, and as a result, we answer the same questions differently. Okay. So we answer, you know, what's appropriate to wear to church? And uh, most sure. boomers wouldn't say flip-flops, uh, but most millennials say flip-flops. Yeah. And so what's appropriate to get married in? 
Uh, most boomers would say it's a $32,000 wedding on average, so it better not be flip-flops. Yeah. And there are websites that you can buy a blinged up, um, ribboned up flip-flop in any color so that the bride can go down with fancier flip-flops than the matching wedding party so <laughs> that the mom has one less thing on her list than adding that by hand because in her daughter's mind, I'm just going to kick them off and dance anyway. Right, right. So when we answer the same question differently, you know we're shaped by different kinds of expectations and experiences. And um, as, I, as I'm going through generational research for 30 years, I began to see some patterns. So for example, some, some doctrines that we argue over, you can see generational patterns in those doctrines we argue over. Right. Um, in approaches to church, you begin to see some, you know, the focus on community, it was much bigger for generation of Xers than it was for boomers. And when you understand what are the key themes of the generations, it makes complete sense that a generation that saw a lot more divorce and a breakdown in community structures would be interested in a community as opposed to the hyper-individualism that marked the baby boomers. Okay, that's interesting. So your argument would be baby boomers generally who were, what would you call their parents? Elders, I've heard them referred to. You bet. Or? I call them traditionalists. They're often okay, called builders or elders yeah. or radio generation. Okay. So they were raised by families that stuck together, whether it was good at home or not. For the most part, divorce rate was quite low, right? That's right. And so your argument would be, as the boomers started to divorce and as Gen Xers started to divorce, the millennials and the younger Gen Xers are like, oh my goodness, I don't have any community at home. Therefore, I seek it out in other people. Well, you can see it in the show Friends. My wife and daughter are Friends addicts. And okay. So I have to listen to it quite often. Your job's <laughs> a joke. You're broke. But you've got these friends. And so all of the older people in that series were caricatures of real people. Hmm. The only fully drawn characters were... Um, uh, the Friends, and then Tom Selleck when he was dating Monica. So those were right. the only fully drawn characters. Everybody else was a cartoon. And uh, you, you, you pick your friends. You create your family because your family of origin was often, well, they're your family. You loved them, but they were often rather dysfunctional or at least appeared dysfunctional. So you created a family. You created a community. Not uncommon at all for Xers to actually relocate, not to be closer to biological family, but to be closer to people they met in their early 20s that they've grown up with through life together, their chosen family. Not at all uncommon. See, this is really interesting to me on a number of levels, and we're going we're gonna to drill down in quite a bit of detail on this. But like, for example, my wife and I, we're empty nesters, I'm Gen X, and uh, we start a new small group tomorrow night. And that small group is all people in their uh, mid to late 20s. And I know when I was in my mid to late 20s, the last thing I wanted to do was get together with people who could be my parents' age and learn from them. Well, Carrie, here's the most exciting thing in all the research I did. Mm -hmm. The bad news is Ed Stetzer and Lifeway discovered that 71% of people between 18 and 23 drop out of church for at least a year, even if they were active youth group attenders and leaders. Right. That to me is a heartbreaking statistic. 71%, seven out of 10 drop out for at least a year. Even if they were active and even if they were involved. Yes. And the one thing that could drop that in half. What's that? Adults, other than the parents, who stay in contact with them, a text message every other week is enough to keep, to recut that in half. A text message every other week from an adult, not their parent. Isn't so, that fascinating? 
it is, this is a generation who, for the, in terms of soft benefits in the business place, in the marketplace, number two in the soft benefits is a mentor. Wow. It's not the millennials that want to work from home. People are like, work from home, that's the answer to the millennials. That's what the, you know, the conference board of his CEO said. They all got these programs for work from home, telecommute. That way we don't have to pay for your real estate. Mm-hmm. Now the millennials want to come into work because that's where you get mentoring. Wow. They want, they want flexible hours, but every mm-hmm. other generation wants flexible hours. They want mentoring, and they want it in the church. They want authentic older adults that they can have authentic conversations as they sort through the questions that are different today because of the life stage of emerging adulthood. Hmm. I know that's a mouthful right there. No, that's good. So, so help me understand, drill a little bit deeper. You've already flagged one issue, which is that, you know, and not all of them who are going to be in our small group or all the millennials, you know, at our church or even in the community have had um, parents who divorced or terrible home life. Some of them have had great home life. So what are some of the other factors that make them long for community? Um, that's right. Millennials have had the same divorce rate as the Xers, but in the United States, at least, the divorce rates have never been over 30%. And so the number of people who've been impacted by divorce are often less than you hear in the press and the media. Uh, Shanti Feldham, when I asked her to endorse the book, reviewed it and said, uh, your numbers are wrong on divorce. You need Hmm. to get them accurate. So um, the galleys weren't done. Uh, The galleys weren't in yet, and so I was able to make some tweaks and uh, get that more accurate. So anyway, um, that's one of the impacts. Your numbers were too high and you had to bring them down? You bet. I was doing the shortcut way, which was taking the number of divorces and the number of marriages and then doing simple math on them. Yeah. And everybody who studies it knows that that's inflated, but that's the number you hear. They're actually- Over and over again. You bet. 50% is actually a projection on divorce statistics. It's never actually happened. It's what experts on marriage say is the projection of where it will be in 20 years. Wow. And so it's never been above 30%. It's not even 50% for third marriages. Really? Huh. It's, o- it's only 50% for people who are married before um, like 19. Oh, it's wow. A little over, it's a little over 50% for people who are married when still very young. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. So it's actually really encouraging news. And, um, uh, but the idea of community is that as society unravels, as the social, people don't walk to church, they don't know their neighbors anymore in the same way. We tend to live much more hyper-individualistic lives. And even in church, the baby boomers liked a polished church. I, I love to say that traditionalists, the people over 70, they were influenced by experts, um, experts telling, and the baby boomers were influenced by entertainers compelling. Hmm. That's so a good about, phrase. Yeah, think Say about that this. one more time. I, I, I want to I hear that. Okay, so the boomers were influenced by? Entertainers compelling. Yeah. So uh, whereas, you know, you do long sermons with a lot of doctrine, and um, um, whereas the baby boomers were like, well, that, that preacher's boring. And so preachers looked a lot more like television shows. It looked a lot more like a variety show, entertaining, funny, captivating, compelling. And the music was much more polished. Yep. And, uh, you know, we, when I was growing up, the uh, song leader sat with the organist and piano player 15 minutes ahead of time and picked songs. Yeah. yeah. That was rehearsal, right? That was rehearsal. Whereas now you pick the songs a month ahead of time, there's scheduling software. You determine if you can be at practice as well as um, do all the services in a larger church. And so even in smaller churches, there's a lot more, a lot more um, polish in the way music works. And so boomers expected that. Right. 
And how's that different with Gen X? Let's play that through in Millennial. You bet. Well, the, you know, the research shows that many Xers want the polish of the boomers. That's why large mm. churches, mega churches are still doing quite well. Millennials and Xers like the polish. And then others want just the opposite of polish. They want authentic. My millennial, my 21 millennial year old millennial son says, oh, dad, I'm tired of the pageantry. I like small churches and the authenticity. I like prayers that feel like somebody is actually saying them rather than they've written them and memorized them. I said, dude, you're killing me because we were dying in those services. Yeah. The, the boomers said, hell no, we won't go to church. And our parents said, well, you're going to go to hell. And we said, no, a good God wouldn't send me to hell because hell is listening to that organist play week after week after week. And, right. um, and so we polished the music. We got more compelling sermons. And, um, but as a result, we tended to have a more entertainment focus, a more indiv hyper-individualistic focus. And I argue in the book that the boomers are the first generation that began to church shop, not because of a fight, but because there was a radio preacher or somebody that wrote a book that they thought was a better teacher. And so they went for the, the better voice, the better throat. It was, in essence, the voice television show while you're, while you're following who the, who the hot hand is, to use a basketball term, in preaching. And um, in many ways, that, that creates some real spiritual problems because you can avoid the dark night of the soul for your entire lifetime by just going to whatever gives you the next Jesus buzz, the next hot yeah. feeling. And we've seen a lot of church shopping. Every single church leader listening is going, yep, 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 yep. And podcasting has just made that more interesting because before you used to have to try to get a cassette or a CD or whatever, you were on dial-up, and now... Basically, you can listen to anyone, anywhere, anytime for free, right? And what's made that interesting is because it's so free, it allows people to focus on community in their churches. So many Xers are like, hey, I don't care if the preaching is of the same level um, that I, you know, as others do, because I can get all of that online. Right. What I care about are the relationships and the authenticity. And so that's one of the angles with, um, with uh, Xers and millennials. And I've even heard my own millennial son say, uh, you know, my my minister is a good preacher, but that doesn't matter to me as much because I can hear that from uh, hundreds of people. Okay, so you say in your book, you say what's really key to understanding what's going on around us is to understand the key characteristics of three, I think it's three generations, right? It's the boomers, the Xers, and the millennials. So can you give us a quick recap? And obviously you can drill into a lot more detail by reading your you book, but can you just give us a couple of hallmarks then of how boomers liked it, how Gen Xers think and behave, and then how millennials think and behave, because there's an awful lot written. And I think we all have like pop knowledge on that. Yep. But while we've got you, you've spent 30 years researching this. Tell us what your take on each generation would be. And then, and then we'll follow through on how that actually impacts church attendance trends, engagement trends, and whether, you know, the earth is spinning out of control when it comes to millennials and the Christian faith. So, Got it. Well, the, uh, let's start with the traditionalists. The tr sure. Uh, it's, it's interesting that that— And they were born when? Give us uh, rough you markers. Bet. I'm a Gen Xer, according to your book. So. You bet. 70 and over. Seven okay, 70, 70 and over and traditionalists. Are traditionalists. And um, so there's a famous painting called American Gothic. And it shows this farmer with his daughter looking very unhappy. And it's a classic painting. Oh, yeah. Well, the very next year, and right upstairs in the Chicago um, Art Institute, is a Picasso picture where you can't tell where the woman is and where the chair is. And they're both flat. And it looks like she's a fish with both eyes on, on the front of her face. <laughs> yes. And so 
you know, people are like, well, what generation was the most rebellious? I got asked that at, at NASA. Which generation is the most rebellious? The traditionalists. Because hmm. while most people had the American Gothic view of life, there were all these ideas, especially in urban centers, beginning to bubble up. Yeah. And there were these two worlds going on simultaneously. And, um, and so traditionalists, many of them were very conservative and keeping the traditions alive. And yet all of the challenges we face today, um, intellectually and challenges to the faith and challenges um, in terms of reaching and keeping our children, all of those ideas got their start. Um, in the oldest of the generations. And yeah, so- that, that's very interesting. You know, I hadn't made that connection, but if I can just sort of interject for a second. Please. I mean, Picasso was active from the 19-teens through to the 60s, maybe even a little bit later. And then that's where deconstructionism, I mean, Foucault and Derrida and others, that whole sort of, you know, existentialism that started in the 19th centuries became nihilism in, in its extreme form. And you're right. you're right. I hadn't really thought about the fact that our grandparents or great-grandparents really were the brokers of all of that because they look so traditionalist, but they're actually rebellious. And that's where the sexual, the seeds of the sexual revolution were sown long before the boomers came along and grabbed that. Actually, that you're saying? The, actually, the medical records show that half of our grandparents, um, got married because it was time to move that relationship forward. So the first sexual sexual revolution happened before the Great Depression, and the Great Depression lowered skirts and uh, raised inhibitions. Because when you can't afford them, you don't need a baby. Right. Yeah, and so our parents were, our grandparents were not as chaste as we think of them. <laughs> and um, um, now there were some differences we can get into later if there's time, but they weren't as chaste as we think of them. And um, there were some challenges going on in terms of the way people thought. Now, in rural areas or outside of urban areas or, or, or academic, you know, university communities, they had less of an impact, but those ideas began to get talked about and that all bore fruit then with the baby boomers. Right. And it looked like there was a huge generation gap. Well, um, instead of a huge generation gap, what we had was a uh, th- this coming to, to life of these very different ideas. And uh, the baby boomers were actually less rebellious because they were simply carrying on the values that they were taught, which was um, a faith in psychology. Mm. You can't trust theology to tell you how to live, but psychology has the answers for how you live your life. Yeah. And... Um, and so I would suggest that being one of the strengths of the baby boomers is a willingness to talk about problems that used to be hidden in attics or in basements. Hmm. And um, um, nine times more likely, Elmer Towns found when he researched baby boomers, baby boomers were nine times more likely to go to a therapist and get help than their than previous generations. At the same time, a lot of confidence in psychology. Uh, many boomers know the ins and outs of psychological theories, but don't know much about scripture. Yeah, that's probably true. So psychologically driven, scriptural literacy dropped. Sexually was a very promiscuous generation. I mean, when you look at, they were the ones at Woodstock, they were the ones in all of that. Is that true or is that just a stereotype? Um, it's both. The uh, Ironically, the boomers talked about pot. It was the Xers that actually smoked it, but didn't talk about it. <laughs> really? Yeah, so the Xers smoked pot much more than the uh, baby boomers ever did. Um, as Yankelovich, the greatest expert on uh, boomers, has said, only 2% of the boomers ever protested. Really? But because television was this new medium, it made it look much bigger than previous rebellions looked because it was in your face all the time. So they were, they were actually more conservative than we give them credit for. 
they were. What was going on was a shift in values from sacrifice to self. Mm. And when the, when the boomers are called the me generation, it's actually quite accurate because as a society, we shifted from trying to survive to exploring. We don't have to worry about lunch. So we went to exploring inner space. And that's a great thing, but it can lead to what I call in the book hyper-individualism, where it is about me and what I want. And even spiritual life gets wrapped around that. And church shopping, church hopping is just one example of hyper-individualism. So no war anymore. Um, you know, there was Vietnam and so on, but no, no, not, not quite the large global battle that the First or Second World War was. Uh, and, and then the birth of consumerism, the real advance of that, and then the birth of the me generation would really be characteristic of the boomers. Oh, you bet. Because um, as Yanklovich notes, there was a major shift from sacrifice to self. Yep. And in that major shift, um, a lot of things get explained and um, um, a different focus in spiritual life. Um, no longer do we sing songs, um, historical hymns, kind of the greatest hits of the church. The songs, you know, the song we sang most as I was growing up is, that's how it feels with God's love once you've experienced it. <laughs> Fresh like spring, you want to sing, you have to pass it on. And so wow. it's not a bad song. It's corny. It's not a bad song. It won't make the top 100 of all time songs. Probably not. And it captures that idea of me and Jesus and rock and roll, you know, rock and roll, love songs, the kind of light FM that works in churches. It, it carries lyrics of love and relationships really well. Me and Jesus, if we can just get seven minutes alone soon, it's going to be so great. And um, they're love songs. Yeah. Uh, you know, if anything, I'm not a fan of rap music, but rap music does theology a whole lot better than uh, than rock and roll does. And so That's the music, point. the music we selected, made a certain kind of uh, reinforced a certain kind of uh, focus on a relationship with God. We brought God close, mm -hmm. um, but then that had some implications when we took it too far. Well, and then as you say, hyper individualism. A lot of people would criticize uh, contemporary church music last forty years as being hyper individualized. It used to be collective and we, the sense of the community, coming before God, and now it's Jesus and me. Okay, so that's interesting on boomers. Take us through Gen X, which is my generation. People born between nineteen sixty five and nineteen. Yeah, nineteen sixty five, and I I cut them off around nineteen eighty. Yep. Uh, others cut them off around 75. It has to do with whether you use the birth curve or whether you use purchasing trends, survey numbers, and voting trends. Okay. Um, yep. But um, that's why the experts differ. So I put them at 1980. And um, um, Xers, we talked about community already. Yeah. Uh, we talked about being heavily influenced by divorce, mainly societal instability. Hmm. Both in the United States and Canada face some big drops in um, um, economic growth. The great... Yeah. You know, the great stability of 20 years was over and, and suddenly there was up and downs. And um, with far more women working than before, it changed the game. And society didn't have the same support structures we did uh, we do now and today. So yeah. you don't really hear boomers uh, feeling the effects of divorce, feeling marginalized or different in some way, nearly as much as we do with Xers. And uh, shows about blended families got a lot more attention then because it was kind of a new idea and a new concept. Yeah. Um, Generation Xers tend to be much more cynical about things. And uh, their, their political shows are cynical. The Simpsons have run for 20 years because yeah. their view of family was not quite leave it to beaver. And, yes. uh, and so as a result, they tend to withdraw from organizations and institutions. Hmm. And um, um, 
and they tend to look past hype. Yeah. And, um, and, and so they've had some struggle. Um, you know, we, we worry about the millennials walking out the door. The generation that has struggled the most with institutions has been Generation X. Uh, mm-hmm. They've created their own families. They've created their own institutions. And um, as a result, community becomes a really big factor in much of their literature. And in the whole emerging church movement, community was a big deal. Collaborative leadership rather than polished worshiper or right. a, a commanding senior minister. And so when you begin to understand these, the generational research, you say, well, no wonder we go through scripture with a different lens. Um, it's shaped by the generational influences that raised us. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and that's very true. I mean, I remember growing up and one of the first economic terms I learned as a kid was stagflation. <laughs> that idea of a stagnant economy and high inflation because they usually run in different cycles. Fascinating. Okay, so I was a uh, late 70s, early 80s, but uh, now we've got millennials from 1980, you say, till about what, 2001 is where you draw 2001 the line? is where I cut them off. Yeah. yeah. Nobody All right. knows for sure. So that's a lot of our kids who are listening and maybe a few of the listeners who are uh, listening right now. And, uh, well, actually quite a few, actually anybody in their 20s, right, is a millennial by that stretch. And you can even take it up to, by your definition, 35. That's right. Right. Okay. So, uh, and some of our kids, some of us who are a little bit older, our kids fit that demographic. So um, tell us a lot about, well, tell the listeners about themselves. Well, I think one of the key factors in understanding millennials, you already mentioned um, Foucault and Derrida and Mm. for Xers. Sartre wrote at the same time as well, I was thinking. You bet, you bet. And so postmodernism began to happen. And so the Xers go into school under one worldview and come out under another. Mm -hmm. And so they come in under modernism, they come out under postmodernism. And I call that in the book uh, because the book is written for lay people. Um, even more than pastors. Um, we call the book um, True for You and Not for Me. Try to summarize that oh, whole yeah. idea of postmodernism. Rel- relative uh, morality, right? So in other words, hey, Hayden, that's great. I'm glad that's probably true for you. Jesus is your savior, but he's not mine. You know, hey, it's right for you to wait until marriage, but that's true for you, not true for me. And you can see it in the fact that 69% of evangelical young people um, have sex before marriage. Sure. And um, um, even more for mainline uh, people in mainline churches. And so the idea is for many of them, it's, yeah, I shouldn't be doing this. For others is, you know what? Um, That's true. And it's great if you can do it, but that's just not working for me. And it's uh, it's a version of Christianity that I would call to use the old missions term syncretistic, where we we synchronize it with other things that seem to make more sense. And... um, and in the book, I use Miley Cyrus as a great example of that. Yeah. In one of her songs, she talks about haters and, you know, the Baptists and her parents and people who are saying, you know, um, only God can judge you. Hmm. Well, that's true, but um, you know who loves you, she sings. Anybody who doesn't love you is a hater because only God can judge you. And, hey, what's true for you may not be true for me. And this book is not how we figure out how God judges us. And actually... Um, I talk in the book about this radio show I heard where they were doing this game of what's worse. And one of the questions was, would you rather be prejudiced or a cannibal? Oh, wow. Cannibal won. I was going to say, I can only imagine who won, and that would be cannibal. I would rather eat people than think badly of them in bigoted ways. Hmm. And so now that's crazy town. But even more than that, you can see it in the papers the last couple of weeks. Uh, USA Today 
on um, uh, what day was it? Thursday of last week, USA Today had a uh, had an editorial on um, young people, students who are petitioning, who are protesting for safe environments. And, you know, they want a teacher expelled there. Uh, well, can because, you say that again? We had a little breakup. They were protesting what? Safe environments. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and so it's a big theme on a lot of university campuses, yeah. and that is it needs to be a safe environment. So the syllabus needs to warn us when there are passages that may open up past memories or past pain, and you, uh, a person needs to have the option of not reading that book and reading something else that won't bring up that past pain. It needs to be a safe place. University is a safe place. And so um, not only free from prejudice, but free from, from uh, re-inflaming old hurts. We'll do our best to link to that editorial in the show notes, by the way. That was uh, mid-November 2015, so we'll try to find that. And by yeah. the time this airs, uh, we'll try to have that link for you in the show you notes. You know, I've so got it in my suitcase, it. so I'll be happy. To oh, great, great, great. I'll, I'll, uh, cool. I'll send it to you. So the point of it is it's that idea of judge not because judging is the ultimate sin. Um, the greatest crime or the greatest sin is to judge another person. And uh, Christian Smith's incredible research where he's followed millennials over the last 10 years, um, he takes a look at their moral foundations, how they make moral judgments. Mm. And while about, 20, you know, while about 25% of them who were raised in church make some uh, moral judgments based on what we would call theological foundations, um, even those who were raised in church and in Bible teaching churches often make psychological judgments rather than theological judgments. Yes. Um, and even answer, even answer theological questions with psychological terms. So psychology has truly won. It has become the fog that shapes our thinking today. Okay, well, this is good. We all just did our Generational IQ 101 class. So thank you go. so much. This is super helpful because it really does show how psychology and worldview has shifted from generation to generation in a, in a helpful um, summary way. Now let's circle back and let's talk about engagement in the church because that is sort of what you're talking about these days and what a lot of us are interested in. So the way a lot of us see it is millennials are not engaging in church. Um, the future of the church is not bright to contradict your you know book title, subtitle, yeah. and, that, and that Christianity maybe is dying. And so you're saying, no, 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 not necessarily. That just all arrives, arises out of, out of generational misunderstanding. So help us walk through that. Why? If I mean, do you think millennials are flocking to the church in droves then? Or, or what are you seeing, Hayden? Nope, they're not flocking to the church in droves. Okay. First, Christianity isn't dying. Let's start, let's start there. Okay, sure. Uh, the, the statistics simply don't show Christianity dying in the United States. Okay. Um, you know, I was just talking with a gentleman from Montreal who was talking about large cathedrals with few Catholic people there in uh, Quebec. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in Canada, their, uh, Christianity has shown a greater decline. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, in my community, we've shuttered or seen so many churches shuttered in the last two decades since I've been up here. And some are growing. Our church is growing. There are a handful right. of other churches that are growing. But yeah, it's not 1995 or 85 anymore. But okay, fair enough. So in Canada, you've seen a bigger collapse, but not so oh, much bet. in the U.S. You bet. In the United States, church attendance is down about 10% over the last 40 years. Okay. And um, um, so is that good news? No. Is it Christianity will be gone in three generations like we hear so often? No. 
No. Um, now, yeah. can I ask one more question? Because yeah. I know we have a lot of listeners in New England. I have friends who do ministry there. All along the West Coast, you know, Seattle, all the way down through California. You have a Bible right. Belt and SoCal, but uh, a little bit of one anyway. Um, right. So... What about people who would say, no, I'm not in the Bible Belt, I'm not in Texas, and even, you know, my friends in Texas or Atlanta, they're like, eh, it's not as easy as it used to be, but, like, are there regions where the the, the fall-off is pretty rapid in the U.S.? Oh, you bet. Uh, okay. For example, I'm here in Chicago, just south of Milwaukee. Yeah. Uh, Milwaukee is one of the most unchurched um, communities in the United States. Hmm. And uh, my son is a church planter in Rhode Island because wow. Rhode Island is uh, one of the more unchurched areas in the country. Yeah. And uh, so New England, for example, to your point, and um, uh, Seattle, um, Oregon, all of, you know those places on the coast uh, where you find the bluest of the states, right. you often find um, um, less interest in conservative Christianity and institutional religion. Okay. Um, no so we're on the it. same page in terms of what we're saying, but you say, but that still doesn't mean Christianity isn't dying. No, that's right. Christianity, there's simply no statistical indications that Christianity is close to dying okay. or we're close to Europe, um, as people often say. The, uh, you know, um, in, 90, in the 40s, Gallup discovered that 96% of Americans believed in God. Mm. Um, when asked the same question in 2011, 94% of people said they believe in God. And so a 2% drop is not the uh, is not the woe is me kind of statistical crisis. Mm -hmm. Now, I think uh, we have a challenge, and that challenge is what people mean by God. Right. So if we take that into account, that's a different game. And um, um, I agree with Christian Smith. He talks about moralistic therapeutic deism. Mm -hmm. I call it be good, feel good, live your life, because moralistic therapeutic deism is quite a mouthful. But um, the fact that many of our churched young people believe, um, answer questions with psychology rather than theology, and uh, believe in a Christianity that's not actually Christianity. My worry is not that the church won't be here in three generations. My worry is the church we have won't be worth having because um, moralistic therapeutic deism is a shell of the good news that the mm. true Jesus is. Yeah, and I mean, to some extent, when you read uh, David Kinnaman's research with the Barna right. Group, you know, he'll say, when you, yeah, 90% believe in God or whatever, and we'll talk about the rise of the nuns in a few minutes. Right. But, you know, he would say, when you look at a traditional evangelical Christian worldview of do you believe the Bible is true, is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life, that stat has dropped significantly over the years. Or do you have different data? Well, there is some effect. different data on that. Um, Barna's data, Barna's data tends to be um, more negative than Gallup's data or the social uh, survey data that okay. the U.S. government does. Okay. Um, and so you kind of have to pick your way through that. The fine folks down in Baylor often take on Barna's data in the press, even in the Wall Street Journal, saying, "Well, that's not accurate." And so you've got different sociologists that right. interpret the data in different ways or get different results on their surveys. Um, so. The way I say it in the book is, it's not as bad as we think because it was never as good as we thought. Yeah, I've got that written down. It's not as bad as we think because it was never as good as we thought. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, we, we were thinking, we heard that 40% of the United States is, is born again, is evangelical, you know, and it was never that big. So it was never that true. Our golden days, our glory days were never that glorious. That's right. And it comes up in the nun study that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are people, there are people who said they were Christian who 
um, their neighbors would have would have their neighbors would have spit out their beverage on their back porch if they'd heard them answer that survey question, because they would have said, "You are not Christian." Right. But everybody claimed to be Christian because there was social expectations for that. Whereas today we're much freer to not pick anything. And so, um, born again, when you ask, as you pointed out, as Kinnaman points out, when you ask the questions, "Do you believe the Bible is accurate?" and "Do you share your faith?" The number of people who define themselves as evangelicals drop dramatically right. over those that say they're born again. But you would, and, and I mean, David's been on this podcast episode twenty four, and uh, and yeah. I, I use his research all the time. Big fan of David and what they're doing. I am too. But, but the question, I, I guess, if I hear your argument right, you would say if you were to retake the poll twenty years ago, thirty years ago, and ask it more accurately, and people answered more honestly, you would have discovered that there was a significant portion of nuns in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And maybe it wouldn't quite rival what we have today, but people just feel more free to say, yeah, I'm not a Christian. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's okay. exactly what I'm saying. Okay, the, that's uh, clarifying. Actually, that's good. Yeah, the, the number of people who pray, the number of people who believe in the divinity of Jesus has remained, as Robert Withnow, kind of the rock star of church sociologists out of Princeton, as he's pointed out, it's remained virtually the same for 40 years. Hmm. And um, um, now what's different is how people interpret it. Um, you know, uh, two thirds of the millennials believe the God of the Bible is the same God of all religions. Right. So they're the same God. So the God of the Bible is the true God. But yeah, they we also hear that believe all the time. That they're this, they also believe that they're the same God, that all religions have, have really right. the same God. Yeah, that's a big stereotype. I mean, I've taught about that and in, in actually right. tried to counter that. It's like, you can't just say that Christianity is the same as Islam, is the same as Judaism. I mean, any Muslim would say, no, we're radically different than Buddhism and radically different than Hinduism and radically different than Christianity. But we in the West seem to say, no, it's all the same. Precisely. Then those are those are ideas that took their uh, that got root there with the traditionalists and that Picasso represented that are that are coming to full fruition now. Right. So in short, is yeah. Christianity going to be gone in three generations? No. Do we have a lot of work to do for the future to be bright? We have to understand that we are in a different world that looks at life differently. And I love the story that. Um, uh, Jackson told in his book on the on the Duns on leaving Christianity. Okay, where he talks about this uh, a friend of his who begins to question his faith, and his father, a minister, ships him off just overnights to a mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I read that. Yeah, but then the but then he says to Drew, it's he's so rationalistic. I'm influenced by Eastern thinking, and he's so rationalistic. I can't relate to any of his arguments. So his his father didn't understand postmodernism or true for you and not for me, and so he's actually having arguments that were meaningful to him, and then and then they're missing his son. My worry is that we won't catch up with where thinking has gone, and so we'll still be having conversations with where it's been, and then I don't think the future is so bright. I don't think Christianity will die. I just think that we won't be able to counter the psychological fog that distorts the gospel. Yeah, I, I think you argue in your book that that was influenced largely by Enlightenment thinking, which is very rational, very didactic, but in fact, the postmodern worldview is very unrational, irrational that way. Is that what you were saying? In, in many ways, yes. The idea is that no one person can be right and believe they're right and everyone else is wrong. It's just too arrogant. Um, so we have to come at answering questions a different way. We can't. We can no longer say, well, the Bible says. 
not right. because the Bible doesn't say it, but because they don't believe that the Bible is the final word on that. And so the real question is, why does the Bible say it? If God's the if if God is great and God is good, then His commandments and instructions are actually great and good. And so let's start with the That's great cool. and good part, and then talk about. Oh, by the way, the Bible also says this. Yeah, this is good. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna finish up today on the future is bright. But let me ask you about you know the big claim that millennials aren't the problem because there has been. I mean, there have been books written. I've written about it on my blog, and we've talked about that before we went on air. Um, but why, why, in your view, are millennials not the problem? I think the millennials are not the problem because the new life stage of emerging adulthood is, if there's a problem, it's emerging adulthood. Okay. And um, uh, I think we've misplaced where we placed the problem. So tell me what you mean by emerging adulthood. I know I had a conversation when this podcast started, episode six, I think, with Ted Cunningham, who talks a lot about delayed adolescence and the problems that's creating. Is that what you mean? Is it delayed adolescence? Um, Yes and no. Delayed adolescence is a synonym for that. But most people have moved beyond that to call it emerging adulthood because delayed adolescence makes it sound like it's a negative thing. Um, You know, I don't think adolescence is a negative thing. I think it's just a thing. And in 1890, the word had never been invented. Yeah, that's Uh, right. And so today, if you had a youth minister who was acting as if adolescence didn't exist, parents would be pulling that person aside saying, hello, you need some introduction to youth ministry classes here. You're dying. Yeah. Dying. Whereas because emerging adulthood has only been about 10 years um, out there, most people don't know it. And um, I, I think the research is pretty clear on it. Um, the five stages, the five markers of full adulthood, they don't happen until 27 or 28 now for many people. And in urban areas, sometimes not until 30. Yeah. Can you go through, do you have those at the tip of your tongue, oh, you the, five, yeah. the five stages? Because I think these are important. And I think as soon as you say that, people realize, oh yeah, that doesn't happen until you're almost 30 now. Here's what's interesting on that. Um, on, in, on surveys, people over 30 believe adulthood, full adulthood doesn't start until 28. Uh, On surveys, people under 30 believe that full adulthood doesn't start until 28. It's one thing that the generations agree on completely. (laughs) That's rare. Yeah. And so here they are. Marriage. Yeah. Children. Picking a career. Being pretty sure this is the career you want to pursue the rest of your life. Um, Finishing your education. And being financially stable enough to consider buying your first home. Gotcha. Yeah, so, then you're an adult, right? Then you then yep. you're no longer a teenager or whatever. You're an adult. You're grown up. Yeah. So let me speak a word to parents. Um, there are simply no Christian parenting books for people in their twenties for emerging adult, yeah. and so that's why we put those three chapters in there because it's right now the only resources there. And parents will say, "My and even in business conferences, pull me aside. My kid's in the basement. What is wrong?" Mm-hmm. I had a mortgage and t- and a kid at 25, and they're a barista part-time and master of Worlds of Warcraft. What am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. Well, you're going to chill because it's a new life stage where f- assembling your identity and figuring out who you want to be, because you're going to work until 75 um, if the current trends on when you can retire and get, and get um, um, government um, support, when you qualify for that, if the yeah. current trends in life expectancy, you got a lot of years to work. And yeah. um, what you want to be when you grow up, you know, parents are saying, you got to find something that makes you happy. Most of our parents said, you got to find something, figure out the happiness when you're off my dime. Right, right. That's very true. You know, and, and the elongated work uh, career is true. Chris Brown's a guest on a podcast, uh, this podcast. He was saying 70% of Americans have less than $10,000 saved for their retirement. So people are going to be working a long time. 
That's interesting. So millennials, obviously, there's uh, that emerging adulthood. What, what's your term? It, it was new to me. Yeah, emerging adulthood. You bet. Em- emerging adulthood. Yeah, you got so, it. So that's different. So what are you saying then? That they just stay in that teenage phase where I'm not going to make my faith my own for longer, but when they hit those markers, they're going to come back to church? Or w- what's the argument um, there? That's the big question. Even okay. the fine folks at Baylor who tend to be the most optimistic. Right. Um, they even say they've been out a long long time. Yeah. And children are what bring people back to church. And, and do you think that's still true? Cause I've uh, read, I've read data that say that's not true. Um, Robert Withrow. Now it's from 2007, but Robert Withrow, the, okay. uh, like I said, the rock star of research, he suggests this, that you can explain the difference between boomer church attendance and millennial church attendance by singles. Mm-hmm. Millennials Married millennials have almost the same church attendance as boomers who were married in a previous generation. Interesting. Boomer singles came to church far more than millennial singles, especially millennial single men. Okay. And because the single, because singles are much larger today, and people remain single longer, and because when they marry, they have children later. The question is, are they are the neuropathways going to be so worn that even when they have kids, they're less likely to come back? Right. In other I, words, they've now got a decade of, of, of habits away from the church. Right. So is, is there enough muscle memory, to use David Kinnaman's phrase, right. to bring them back into church? And they're kind of like, some people are going, I don't know. And so the question I think the church has to answer is, um, I, I don't think there are. I think that's where the nuns are coming from. Definitely yeah. more millennials who are nuns. Nobody disputes that. They right. dispute is the drop as big as it seems to be. Okay. Yeah, nobody disputes that there are more millennials who are nuns. The right. question then is, can the church be both attractional and missional? Because I think what the nuns prove is there's a whole group of people that no matter what they do, they're not coming, what we do, they're not coming through the front door. Yeah. So in the whole attractional missional debate, uh, here's my philosophy: be attractional and missional. Um, get going. Right on. Yeah. And so we ought to attract the people we can attract. But the nuns show us that there will be people who do not see the church as a source of help, and that's much greater in the blue states than it is in the red states. You know, Jerry Gillis. I think it's episode sixty-two. We'll link to us in the show notes. Talks about how he turned his attractional megachurch. Mm-hmm. into a missional attractional megachurch. Fascinating. I think he may be onto something. And I know the pressure we get at Connexus Church, not pressure, but the, the yep. comments that we hear at Connexus Church from the under 35s are, what are we doing for the community? What are we doing for the community? I mean, and so we do a lot. We partner with food banks. We have international ministries and all that. But that is the heartbeat in a way. It honestly wasn't for our community. For my age, it would be like, hey, what we're doing on Sundays, we're doing that for the community. We're trying to reach people, right? Well, that's exactly right. And it, it, people will rub shoulders with somebody else and say, wow, you know, I guess I always thought Christians were, I don't know, but you're not like that. And um, that opens up conversations, which opens up opportunities to say, um, do you worry about what you're passing on to your children? And people do. They worry about their kids. And so kids are still a powerful factor, but they don't have the muscle memory and they don't see the church as a source of help. Ed Stetzer's research on on lost uh, millennials who no longer attend church don't see themselves as churched. It was stunning. Of the nuns, uh, millennial nuns, 
two thir- over two-thirds of them don't think of the church as a place they would go to if they needed help with some problem in their life. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you think about that. I think about all the unchurched people within an hour of where I'm sitting doing this interview with you in Canada, uh, north of Toronto. And I would think, you know, for a millennial that's struggling with an addiction or broken relationship or, oh my goodness, I can't believe my empty nester parents are getting a divorce. Who am I going to talk to about this? Uh, they're probably not thinking church and they're not thinking pastor. And so this is interesting. So as we process all of this, and this is super helpful, and I just appreciate the nuance in your discussion as well. It's just great to have, because we all sit there with this problem, right? We're church leaders. We all sit there at our board meetings and staff meetings and our personal prayer time trying to crack this nut, and it's a tough one to crack, and it is complex. But for those who are saying, okay, I understand the argument that the church isn't dying Sure, maybe maybe it was this bad in the 70s and our polls just lied to us because people were too polite or felt that there were certain answers that maybe have changed. And maybe, okay, there is an emerging adulthood issue going on now, but our church is smaller than it's ever been. Um, the church seems weaker in our community than it's ever been. And, you know, I'm, and, and even I, I talked to lots of mega church pastors who are like, yeah, we're a little bit concerned about the 20 to 35 year olds because we're all getting a little grayer um, around here. What do we need to do? Like, first of all, what do you say to that? And then what do we need to do? What I say to that is, yes. Mm. Um, okay. that's, that's the case. That's in a honest. Lot of, that's the case in a lot of places. The single hard, I think the biggest challenge the church today faces is five generations. We've never had it before. God's greatest blessing is 30 more years of life in the last 115 years. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And so I think, I think more people will go to hell because we live 30 years longer than any other factor because we used to adjust naturally to the younger generations. And now we don't have to by force, we have to do it intentionally, and it is hard to give up what we have come to rely on for security, a sense of solidarity, a sense of stableness in a changing world. And um, uh, I think the fact that we live 30 years longer will impact the ability of churches to make those adjustments, and many of them will die because they can't change. Whoa, you just froze me in my tracks. I've never heard anybody say that before. That's fascinating. Because people don't change well, and I have a passion around change. I wrote a book about it, right? I've got, a, I've got a passion around change. You're saying because we live another 30 years, people are unwilling to give up their entrenched practices, and people will be in hell because of that. That's fascinating. Uh, churches used to change, adapt to the younger generations more often, and there were fewer of them. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, you're dead at 55, 60. I mean, we talk, I talk about this with my parents all the time. They're in their 70s. And I remember when I was a kid, if somebody died at 60 or 65, I'm like, oh, well, they had a full life, right? And that, that's probably <laughs> the perspective of a 10-year-old. But I mean, there was, there was truth to that. You know, when someone died at 60 or 65, a generation or two ago, that was like, well, they, you know, they almost saw retirement. Oh, well. My grandfather's. My grandfather died at 65, and I thought he had a ripe life. I'm 52. I don't think 65 is old. It is not a ripe life. Yeah, I'm 50. I do not think that uh, <laughs> that 65 is old anymore. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so yeah. because of that, but I also watch myself getting older. I mean, yeah. I watch myself going, nope. Uh, I used to think I could go to any church, and now I'm thinking, oh, if that music was every week, I would, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. 
And so I'm going through what everybody goes through as they get older. I like what I like, and I don't like what I don't like. Yeah, and I know that's true. And I've, you know, it's funny, turning 50, you think about a lot of things. And I've spent the summer praying with my elders, and I'm like, I want to make the next 30 years of my life not about me, because I know how selfish I'm getting. And I want to make it about the next generation. I want to make it about my kids, uh, my kids' kids. I want to make, you know, and hence we're moving into a community group with people who almost could be my kids. Which will be great for you and great for them because um, uh, millennials really do want conversations with people who are older and can help them sort through the choices they face. So that's the first bit of advice. What, what, are, what are four things that any church could do immediately to impact millennials? Number one— <laughs> Start changing. That is— that is worth the price of admission, even though this is a free podcast, but, you know, <laughs> well, good. That, that is so, great. Number First is, you may have to ask the question differently. Why don't they come to my church is not a legitimate question. They don't come to your church because they don't like your church. That's the answer. Yep. All right. So what does our church have to do differently so that we can reach them for Jesus? That's the question. And this goes to change because we, yes. I mean, if you're if you're a 40-year-old, 50-year-old, 60-year-old church leader, you've got all kinds of scars you can show about how hard it was <laughs> to change your church to make it what it is today. And now your kids look at it and millennials look at it and they go, yeah, and we don't like it. And you're like, well, we do. So we're just going to stay the same. Well, eh. my- when when my son, who's a worship minister, and he's 25, yeah. almost 26, he's a worship minister out in, in, in New England, he says to me, oh, I love the preaching at my home church, but wow, you're so old school. All that Chris Tomlin music oh, and yeah. guitar solos. I'm like coughing up a lung right there <laughs> between the second verse. Yeah. Like, you would not believe the wars we fought to get drums in the house of the Lord. Play that funky music, white boy. <laughs> was a fight to the death. So what is he into? He's a music dude. It's, you know, it's it's more Americana, and they slow down the. It was uh, last week. I did church consulting in a church of 120, and it, it was uh, it was the charismatic um, 58 year old woman who said, "Tell the 24 year old worship minister to speed up the song. I'm dying here. Speed up the songs." I thought. I, I thought. I, I don't even know how to process this. This is yeah. a whole new world. And, right. um, and and will one generation relinquish the church to the next? That's the transition. I'm going to start preaching here, but that's okay. Keep going. No, no, no. You you preach because here's the second question. I think we've asked. We spent years saying, "What do we do to reach the younger generation?" Mm-hmm. The question is, "What do we do with the people who have another twenty or thirty years of life and service who are going to feel like they have been put out to pasture?" Mm-hmm. Or why are we so reluctant to get 20, 30, and 40-year-olds around the senior leadership table? That's the other question we have to it's ask, It's a right? great question, mm-hmm. because in the olden days, young men were invited to the table. Now we exclude them, and it's like, oh, you can help, but you can't lead. That is exactly right. So they'll start their own church, if there's any left. And they will, and sometimes mm-hmm. they do it online, and sometimes they do it other ways, but Yes. And so, but the older generation is like, well, what happens to me? Well, I had a whole chapter on what do we do with boomers and traditionalists? And the boomers have reinvented every era and they're going to reinvent retirement. Mm. And that's what they are. Churches are not ready for boomers who have corporate experience saying, Pastor, I don't want to fold the envelopes. What I want to do is show you a hiring system that will increase your success at hiring from 50% to 80%, which is the top end of the national average. I did it in three other places I worked. I'd like to help you here. And so what's yep. the answer to that? 
But what the answer is churches need to go beyond spiritual gift surveys and even Gallup skill, uh, um, strength finder and start looking at skills. What are the skills that people have developed? And um, look, most of us, as Carl George, my mentor, pointed out to me, we tend to, hi- we tend to recruit people and hire people who don't make us feel insecure. But we've got all kinds of boomers with experiences now um, that will make ministry leaders feel insecure and loving our insecurities and bringing in other people with expertises we don't have uh, will transform will transform the church in a new era. So do you think that's kind of a, hey, I don't have to lead and I don't have to be the top dog, but I can help? Is that the kind of, you know, team we'll put together in the future where, you know, older leaders would be like, all right, I don't, I don't have to be the lead whatever anymore, but just let me help. However, you know I what? Know. I think I think this. I think older leaders are, and I say this in the book. Older leaders, I say to them, you know what? If you want a service that's like that has occasionally the kind of music you want, put together a Sunday night service with hymns or or Maranatha choruses or whatever <laughs> yeah. you think is your yeah. era, and put it together. Do not ask your worship minister to be out another night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how to organize things, and you want to take time away because you're retired. So make a team of people who rotate who's in charge depending on who's in town this month. And, wow. and share the leadership. And with the younger generations, you know how to lead from the side. One of the beauties of older generations was we learn how to get stuff done when we're not in charge. Learn to yeah. lead from the side and mentor from the side and then feel free. Feel free to pop back in small groups with your own generation because nothing feels like home like people who, who catch our musical references and remember the entire theme song to Gilligan's Island or uh, Bonanza, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can sing Gilligan's Island, not Bonanza. <laughs> but, but there you go. Yeah, that's true. So this is, this is fascinating. You know what? That, the awesomeness of what you said completely derailed me. So just continue wherever you were going. Because... All right. Well, number one, number one is this. We got to ask different questions. Yeah. It, the question is now, wh- not why won't they come to our church? The question is, what would we have to do? Right. Well, the second question is, what do we do with the people who are older whose church it's been if we're going to take it away from them by making it younger and for another generation? What do we give them in its place? That question never gets asked. And so no wonder we can't do change management. One of the laws of change management is don't take something away without something else in its place. Hmm. And, um, and then um, thirdly, um, understand emerging adulthood. If that's one thing any church leader can do is begin to get Christian Smith and begin to read on emerging adulthood and his great research on emerging adulthood and the church. Okay, we'll link and, to uh, some of that in the show notes. You bet. And by the way, I wrote a book that summarizes all of that. So it might well, be that's helpful. even better. We'll link to that. Is that your previous book? No, that um, this one actually focuses on emerging adulthood. I only did three pages on it in the last one. Gotcha. Okay. And then, um, um, so get to know emerging ad- adulthood. Fourthly, Get adults connected with millennials. Yeah. What you're doing in your small group, as I said earlier, somebody who will text, why should the school system determine the fact that, this will make me cry, why does the school system say that 70% have to drop out of church? I agree. The school system stops it at 18. If 23 is the vulnerable age, student ministry goes till 23. It is a no-brainer. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that you invite, um, you, know, you invite your seventh grader and your 22-year-old to the same amusement park outing. Right. That's a little awkward and kind of creepy. But it's, it's relational. It can be organic. It can just be, I know this guy, and I know he went to the university here, but when he's in town, we're going to have coffee, and I'm just going to text him. Nobody pays me to do that. I'm not his leader. I'm just his friend. 
what happens in, in on small churches it's that in some ways it's easier because the people who go off are known to everybody yeah. in bigger churches you may have to peel off a couple of sponsors each year to follow that group through and we've done that with our student ministry we we encourage uh, leaders to hang on for that critical year because I remember when my son went to university, my oldest, he just said, Dad, you know, we had, he had a pretty normal childhood. I mean, we had, you know, moments and all that stuff, but every, it was pretty stable. We didn't move a lot. He's only lived in two houses, you know, went to the same public school all of his years, same yep. high school all of his years, and then everything is upended. And he's like, Dad, everything changed. And that's very disconcerting. There are a thousand questions to think through and a whole different worldview and a whole different set of values yeah. um, to sort through. And so um, that will make a big impact. And then um, lastly, I think we've got to deal with be good, feel good, and live your life. Now, yeah. I, what I, I don't say, ministers, you've been preaching the wrong gospel. I'm not that kind of guy. I don't this, is, this is a moral therapeutic day. In a, day that, 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 right? That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And um, here's what I think. I think the psychological fog that has developed, um, that, that psychology is the new theology in our world today, that we've got to cut through that. And so if we don't recognize it's there, we can't cut through it. And here's, here's really kind of a game of jujitsu I would suggest for ministers. Mm -hmm. All right. There's some great research on moralistic therapeutic deism. Why don't we use that research to say, here's what most people believe, even people who, who are Bible believing church folks. Right. And by the way, where do the millennials say they got it? They told in the interviews that they got it from their parents. And so the boomers think, answer the questions the same way. So how do you, how do you fight that? You actually use the psychological, sociological research to say, here's what most people believe, but here is the God of the Bible. Yeah. And the God of the Bible is a God of beauty and power. And along with beauty and power comes judgment. And the yes. ultimate sin is not the judge. The ultimate sin is to think that we can, the ultimate sin is to think we can live lives of freedom without judging. Mm -hmm. And um, to begin to help people understand that what you believe Christianity is, isn't Christianity. Then if they reject the faith, they're rejecting the faith. My worry is that a lot of people who say they're spiritual but not religious have not rejected Christianity. They've rejected be good, feel good, live your life. And that's the tragedy. The of version of Christianity that we've been presenting. So that, Hayden, let me ask you, um, are there one or two preachers or communicators? And I think what I hear you saying, let me, let me preface this a little bit, is don't just ignore the the current of thought that's happening, that moralistic ther therapeutic deism right. that's out there, you know, the feel good, live good, you know, etc. Um, because if you just ignore it and say, here's the biblical worldview, you're not going to be able to bridge those worlds. So you have to sort of understand it, present it and say, but let me show you a better alternative. Is there anyone who's doing that really well? Who are your favorite voices on that these days? You, you know, well, uh, a lot of folks follow uh, Tim Keller because of his I was going to say, he's a guy who comes top of mind on that. To cut through that. But, you know, there. Um, now, now that you've asked me, I'm drawing a complete blank. No, that's okay. But, I mean, um, Andy does that to a certain extent, Andy Stanley. But Tim Keller has just a sea of millennials following him in New York City. And he's a boomer. He's, I think, in his mid-60s. And he does such a masterful job of presenting what everyone in the room believes and says, now let me introduce you to the gospel. Boom, boom, boom. And this is why that's not true. All right. And here, this is going to be a problem for some of the Xers because um, as Bill Hybels pointed out, 
you know, yeah. when boomers were going were going through their thing, there were intellectual questions, there were rap discussions, there was parsing apart rock and roll songs and what they mean and late night discussions. And the extras came along and went, whatever, true for you, not for me. <laughs> you know, let's get pragmatic. What people want are pragmatic. They want they want a they want a faith with with legs, with hands and feet, and that's true. But as Barna, as Kinnaman points out in his latest book on why millennials have left the church, yeah. is of the millennials of the six reasons millennials give for why they've left the church, four are intellectual. Bottom line is intellectual is back, mm-hmm. and many Xers. Matter of fact, my my the, my seminary um, went out and hired some folks because of a big grant to, uh, to um, communicate to young people. Uh, what to do with your doubts and understand the faith and worldview better. And when they pulled together some large church ministers, they said, this is really not what millennials want. What they want is an active faith, not an intellectual faith. And frankly, that's just not what the research shows. It's yes. what their generation wanted. The millennials want the ability to answer questions. And the single biggest predictor, and this is Cornell, not even religious researchers, the single biggest predictor of whether or not you're going to walk away from the Christian faith for good, you're going to be not a nun, but a done, is whether or not you had questions and people would would talk those real questions through with you. Yeah. Is church a safe place to have intellectual questions? Can you sort that through? And the best research out of Southern California on how families path on their faith, families that are rigid on their doctrinal beliefs are half as likely to pass on their faith as families that allow their children to explore other denominations, right. visit other churches, and uh, even go to other denominations and to swallow hard and say, huh, I guess I'll visit you in the uh, incense part of heaven. I right. like the church fathers. I don't think they're authoritative. Can't believe you become orthodox. Where did where what happened? Um, God bless you that we still love the same Jesus. It just takes your prayers are just more liturgical than mine. And when we get to heaven, we'll enjoy that. We'll enjoy that together. Until you can do that, the chances of you passing on your faith to your children drop substantially. Yeah. I remember Kara Powell, I think she was episode four, one of my favorite, probably my top quote of hers is that what's not toxic to young people's faith is doubt. It's unexpressed doubt. And if our churches can be exactly what you're saying, Hayden, the kind of places where young adults can actually engage the deeper questions. You know, it's interesting as we're recording this, we did our first ever at Connexus Church where I serve bonus message. We've never done that, but I spent almost an hour interviewing. We're talking about evil. And I didn't want to do this on the weekend, but I thought, I think we need to go there. Spent an hour interviewing a guy with his doctorate in uh, missiology focused on demonology. And we went right into demonization, all that stuff. Young people are fascinated with that stuff and they want deeper answers. And so we're exploring ways to go deeper into that stuff. And, um, you know, the answers are there. Christianity actually stands up to intellectual scrutiny, which is the good news. And I can't believe an hour has gone by. Oh my goodness. This is, this has been fantastic. I'm so glad. Can I tell you one story? You can tell me whatever you want. And then then, then I really will quit the, Hmm. uh, cause I often don't quit on this topic. So my son, Josh, reads the book, mm. and uh, uh, he's got dyslexia, so that's ironic. Dad, can I buy a copy on the Kindle? Uh, which, what people don't know is that authors can get paper books very inexpensively, but you got to pay full price for Kindle. Yeah. I'm like, great, let me pay full price for my book so that my son can actually hear it rather than <laughs> read it. And he, he says to me, this part about intellectual doubt so true, Dad. He said, I had a lot of doubts. And this, I didn't know, because this is mm. the kid who was quiet. 
he said, I had a lot of doubts and I loved my sponsor and I was really close to my small group leader in high school, but I just never felt like I could say, well, what about this? And what about that? He said, I would not be in the faith except for a conversation we had when I was a sophomore and you, you and I both had something we had to do and we drove to our family reunion separately. And I mentioned, I, I decided I would stick my toe in the water and mention doubt. And you talked about the doubts that you've had and what you've had to do to work through those and how you carry doubt like a, like, like a, um, like a virus, like, um, you know, like chicken pox, you carry mm. that every so often it flares up and you have to, uh, you have to work that through again. He said, for me, that was completely liberating. Not he's my dyslexic kid. who's a theological junkie. He simply mm. went through apologetics podcasts from uh, the time he was a freshman in university all the way through to today. And, um, so now he's the one that fills me in on advanced theology, even though that's what my seminary degree was in. Mm. So, here I am just a month ago finding out my own son is saying, if we couldn't have had that conversation. I don't I, know where I'd be. That's exactly it. We got we to gotta make safe places for our kids and understand the questions they're asking, even if it means we got to put some weekends learning some of the new things in philosophy. Not because it's fun, but because we're playing for keeps on this one. Yeah. Hayden, this has been amazing, and uh, I know this won't be our last conversation, and I just want to thank you. Thanks for your heart. Thanks for your passion. Thanks for your expertise, and, and thanks for the fact that, you know, at 52, you're digging into this issue, not running away from it or hitting cruise control. I know you've helped a lot of leaders, and the answers aren't simple, but I think conversations like this and really looking at what the data has to say and building relationships with millennials, you know, not sitting around with people our age going, what's going on? But actually, you know, diving into the deep end uh, with the next generation is really going to be hopeful. And it is the gospel. The good news is God's got more invested in this than any of us do. And so that's powerful. I know people are going to want to learn more. They're going to want to get to know you. I would encourage you to read the book. Hayden's a great writer. Um, it is easy to read, and it isn't written just for pastors, although I imagine every pastor will want to get a copy of it. Tell us about the book. Tell us where to find it. And you get some free resources as well you want to make people aware of. Gotcha. Yeah, the book called Generation IQ, Christianity Isn't Dying, Millennials Not the Problem. Future is Bright. You can get it on any of the uh, Christian uh, uh, sources, many Christian bookstores, published yeah. by Tyndale. And um, um, you can also go to my web, my religious website, and that's www.christianityisnotdying.com. Mm -hmm. um, if you're interested in generational application for your church staff or for your organization, um, that would be... Uh, www.mygenerationalcoach.com. So that's, gotcha. that's the business site for the first book, Sticking Points. Yeah. But the, my, uh, my best friend, who's an executive pastor of a large church, he said, please make some videos, short videos that I can show my staff, that other churches can show their boards. Sh small church, big church, you can, um, uh, with some questions at the end for discussion. So if you Great. go on the website, Click uh, on a Christianity is not dying dot com. Click in the upper right hand corner on the paperclip post-it note. You'll go right to a, a set of videos. You don't have to pay anything. You don't have to sign wow. your name in for anything. You can just play them right there and they go for seven minutes. And at the end are three questions for a discussion. And there's actually two additional ones, one for churches in small communities where you don't have any choice but to reach five, uh, all five generations. Yeah. 
And another one for big churches that, that are really targeted toward a generation and aren't facing generational challenges now. And there's one about what to do with the baby boomers, because I think they'll have as much impact as the uh, millennials will in terms of throwing us a curveball. Hayden, this has uh, been fascinating. Hayden Shaw, thanks so much for being a guest today. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. What fun. Well, that was a fun conversation, man. I'll tell you, made me think a little bit differently. I am still passionate about reaching out to millennials and we'll do everything we possibly can to help them discover Jesus, choose Jesus. That's what we're all about at Connexus Church. And we're moving into our, I think, biggest year yet. And uh, I imagine you are, at least that's your hope, right? So that's sort of what we want to do in this podcast, to just help you as much as we can uh, with practical ministry tips. And uh, if you want more, you can get everything in the show notes. It's just kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 69. And remember, that site is about more than just show notes. We have uh, lots of uh, discussions on the blog, and I try to publish a lot of um, helpful articles uh, for church leaders and leaders in general that don't really make it to this podcast. So uh, if you're not a blog reader, I would love for you to become that. And then we've got some uh, really exciting things coming up this year. Ravi Zacharias is going to be back on the podcast uh, early on. We're going to hear from Perry Noble again. Perry's got some fresh stuff he's been working on. Can't wait to have him back. Dave Adamson, who does social media for North Point Church, is going to be one of my guests. So is Whit George, who is the executive pastor at Church on the Move in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Great guy. Matt Keller, Jenny Catron, Jonathan Pearson, uh, Rob Cizek, Rusty George. I mean, we got we got some incredible leaders coming up and uh, much, much more. So best way to make sure you don't miss anything is to subscribe. You can do that for free. And again, anytime you share this with leaders, I'm so grateful. And we, oh yeah, one more thing. We got some bonus podcasts. So we've got some Ask Carries coming up in January. I get so many questions from you and they are phenomenal. And uh, they will pop up randomly on Thursdays. And again, if you subscribe, you don't miss that. So listen, Hope 2016 is off to an incredible start for you. We are back next week with episode 70 and some more leadership love. And I really hope that today helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.